Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to give you a report about uh, Pesach, just uh, just to share with you uh, just uh, just what I've been up to. Sorry, we missed a few classes. Uh, so so I went back to the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, and this is my my fifth year going, and it's a uh, it's a very interesting place up there because you know you're up in the mountains and um, it's still popular in the in the summertime. Uh, a lot of people come up, but off off peak, meaning when it's not the summer, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty kind of mountainous and and not a lot of not a lot of tourists. And unfortunately, it's it's on the economically depressed side, and so you have like just kind of small roads going through the woods and just boarded up old houses on either side of the road and uh, bungalow colonies which look uh, sort of abandoned and so it's got a bit of a ghost town flavor to it and, and but the people who do live there are sort of like uh, mountain people mountain people in the sense like, like the Appalachian Mountains so it's, it's not quite that extreme but it's, it's, that's what it is and throw in Hasidim in the mix. So it's, it's a very kind of unique blend in the sort of the off-peak time up in the Catskills, which is, which is most of the year. Now, I've been going this now my, my fifth year going there. There's, um, there's a place called Vacation Village, which I just love the name of that because it's, it's, it's so wrong. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know, it's like... <laughs> There's just this kind of like tragic, utopian kind of like sensibility behind that, that, that name. But um, anyway, that aside, what, what some genuine visionary, and I mean that very sincerely, what some visionary did, even when the Catskills at this point had been, just, just a kind of a brief note about the Catskills, if, you're, if that name doesn't mean something to you, uh, the Catskills was the destination place for people who lived in the New York, New Jersey, you know, Connecticut, just uh, Pennsylvania, especially Jews, and that was the entertainment center. And it was the, it was the center of um, comedy, especially stand-up comedy, if you've ever heard the, the term borscht belt. Um, just that, all the great comedians played there. And uh, it was a significant entertainment capital. And then came the airplane and Florida, and people, that exact demo, basically discovered that they could go to Florida and be on the beach in the sun, and they were like, so long Catskills, and then that just kind of, that just ruined the Catskills, basically, as this, as this destination place, until um, this day, basically, it's never quite, it's never quite recovered, and so you've got these great sort of like resorts that are up there, that are all kind of just shut down or, or empty or, or just, you know, out of business. Places like these are names that, um, you know, would evoke great emotions in people if, if they grew up with this. Grossingers, right, the Browns, Kutchers, the Nevely, these are all like big names in people's uh, memories. But now it's, it's gone. In fact, while I was there this past... Uh, this past Pesach, just, uh, just a few days ago, uh, the last day of Pesach, we saw in the distance this plume of black smoke. 
And my brother-in-law kind of looked up and he said, well, that's, I think that's where the Browns is. That was just his guess. And sure enough, the next day's headline was, the Browns burns down. So just even the last, that was another one of the great hotels up, up in the Catskills. And where you see kind of like the, the Hasidim and the mountain people, the, the, the place of overlap really is the Walmarts. And so the, I spent a lot of time in the Walmarts there. And it's just, it, it's, just a, it's just a very interesting window into things. Now, like I say, a visionary created this place called Vacation Village, which, um, which they took just this huge expanse of forest and they cleared out this, this many, many, many acres, like dozens of acres of forest, just cleared it out and built a community, like from scratch, like one of these ready-made developments. You know, that, and in the summertime, and, and even though the Catskills at this point was basically over, somehow this development was a huge success and completely sold out. And in the summer, every summer to this day, right, we're in 2012 now, you've got 1,000 to 2,000 people in this, crowded in this community. And it's thriving. There's a kosher Chinese restaurant there. I mean, there's a shul, there's swimming pools, there's tennis courts. It's like a, a real thriving, amazing little community. So, but, Passover time, the place is empty. And so, so, so that's when I've gone. I've never gone in the summer. So when you go up there now, it's the experience of being in a, in a neighborhood that's completely abandoned. So the, the only way I can describe it is it's like being in this post-apocalyptic setting where you're like walking in this like this neighborhood where no one is there, like a very large neighborhood. No one is there. So what does it say about me that this is my fifth year in a row going? It's like I, I love this place. And I, I love the emptiness of it, and there's just enough people, you don't run into them, but there's a shul, like maybe a, a, a three-minute walk, and so the shul is full, so you have this, like, this balance of, like, this community, but it's, at the same time, you're in the middle of the woods. So, so the first year, um, I shared this with you, but I'll give you an update, and there's a kind of a practical life lesson that I want to share with you based on this. But just to give you some background, I shared with you once that the, the first year I went up there, it was um, Erev Pesach, so, so Passover was about to start, and there's a tradition um, for men, it's a, like a Hasidic tradition really, uh, that men before the holiday or before Shabbos should go to the mikveh, and so I, uh, I wanted to go to the mikveh, and I didn't know where, where the closest one was. By the way, you know, when, when I first got married, I, I, I spent a Shabbos. My wife is from Borough Park, which is you know a very densely populated religious community in, in, in New York City. And we were staying at this hotel, and Shabbos was about to start. Actually, it was Sukkot. And I asked the, the hotel clerk, I said, um, I said, can you tell me where the nearest mikveh is? And he said, the nearest mikveh on this block? So, <laughs> so, so, no shortage of mikvahs in Borough Park, you know, that's the good news, right? But in the Catskills, I wasn't quite sure where the closest mikvah is. So we're driving around, and we hit this place, which was like, the only way I can describe it, this is the image that always pops into my head, is in, you know, all those um, Wild West shootouts, you know, where it's like 
high noon, and it's an empty square, the empty town square. And that's what it looked like. It was completely empty and like dust just blowing across like the empty streets. And there in a clearing was a rabbi lying on his side trying to light a fire, this little fire that he was going to burn his chumetz in. And in my mind, and I don't know if my imagination has added this detail or not, but there is a live chicken kind of running around, you know. I think that was probably my imagination, but, you know, if there wasn't a chicken running around in the clearing, there should have been, you know. <laughs> so, so you have this guy just trying to light this fire, and it just, I don't know, it definitely looked like a Mad Max kind of, like, you know, setting. And he, he gave us directions to, to the mikvah, and he just, uh, just, uh, just comedically, just the name of the street that the mikvah was on was Lover's Lane. And it was this tiny little road, like, leading into the forest. And so we, we found it and we drove there. And we're in the middle of the woods at this point, really the middle of the woods. And we see this clearing, and there's this big parking lot, and it's filled with cars. And, and it's in front of this building, and we're like, what's going on? Because it's just, it seemed like such an isolated place, and there were so many people there. And it turns out that in that building, this was um, where the Vizhnitzer Hasidim were. It was a compound of, of, of Vizhnitz. You know, it's a large branch of Hasidim. And I, I talked with one of the, the founders of the community, and he told me that it was the um, idea of one of the Vizhnitzer Rebbe's to create a, like a shtetl pre-World War II in the middle of the forest that would sort of mirror Europe before, before the war. And so this is like just a few, like, like a few rows of houses, like it's a tiny little neighborhood. And like the little kids there just speak Yiddish. And it's just a whole kind of like little world unto itself. And we see in front of the big building where, where all the uh, cars were parked, that they're baking matzahs. And this is like right before Pesach, they're all baking matzahs. And this is like... This is a very special custom among Jews, and most of us don't get a chance to do this, but, but, but they do get a chance to do it. And they're dressed in their finest. So you have to imagine this assembly line with Hasidim all with their, their fur strimals and their long black silk kapotas, and they're making matzah, like just a few hours before Pesach. Yeah, it's just a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. So we asked, could we have some matzahs? And they said, well, you know, wait till the end, and if there's matzahs left over, then, then, then you know, we'll sell you some. And, uh, or, I don't know if they said sell, but we, we, we definitely bought them. Um, and uh, there were matzahs left over, and we were able to get them, so that was a beautiful thing. So, so that's just the background to this. So, so, so every single year, the last four years, we've gone Erev Pesach, We've gone and we've gotten matzahs from them, you know. So this year, about a month ago, I get on the internet from my brother-in-law, who's, who has the house in Vacation Village. I get an email from him with about five different pictures, and it's a picture of a, uh, of a building on fire. And that building where they make the matzahs burned down this year, like just a short while ago. So we were wondering, you know, besides the, the, the tragedy of the, the building burning down, you know, which is obviously a big loss, um, we were wondering, well, are we going to be able to get the, these special matzahs 
you know, this year or not. So uh, my brother-in-law tracked down a phone number and he said, well, you know, they're gonna, we don't know where in the forest, essentially, they're going to be they're gonna be baking them. We don't know how to find them. We have this number. It may or may not work. We don't know. So he, he gives me the number, and he was busy with a lot of last-minute things, so it was up to me, right? So, so, anyway, I was busy shopping and everything like that, and also I was uh, arranging speakers for the, for, for the Happy Minion, and I'm at ShopRite up there in the Catskills, and the, the person I'm speaking to, my friend Adam, says, well, uh, have you gotten your matzahs yet? Right? And I thought, oh, the matzahs! You know, I had completely forgotten. And now it's really almost Pesach. And so I'm calling this number, and no one's picking up at this number. And I tried it a few times, and it just seemed like a dead end. I could tell no one's going to pick up. I tried it a few times, and it just, I didn't have a good feeling about it. It just seemed, anyway, didn't happen. And so I just thought, well, you know, kind of just let it go and thought, all right, well, we just won't have those matzahs this year. That's, that's what it is. So anyway, uh, I go to the mikveh, and uh, this is probably a few hours later, and now it's like really within the hour before Pesach. And my experience has been that, that uh, all the matzahs for sure are gone, which, which was the case, by the way. And, you know, it's over. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I got to the mikveh, now this is back on the Vizhnitz compound. And, um, and I, I hear like a voice in my head. And it says like this, David, did you pray? Did you pray for the matzahs? And then I, I thought back to myself, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the the response that came from this kind of thought was, what good is it to pray? Like, it's, it's not going to happen. It's already over. I already, there was a window. The window's over. What, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's useless to pray. That's, that was my instinct. And then I thought to myself, but I remembered a teaching from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And what Rabbi Nachman says is the following that if you receive something without praying for it, for it, that you receive it on the level of an animal. Because an animal receives things without praying for it. Like a human being prays and receives. An animal just gets. And so I thought to myself, what if I do get the matzahs? What if something happens where I do get the matzahs and I haven't prayed? Then I'll be receiving these matzahs, these like super holy matzahs, on the level of an animal. And so I prayed, but it was a very, it was a prayer like I'd never made a prayer before, because I didn't think the prayer was going to be effective, but I was praying just in case I got them. (laughs) Not in order to get them, but just in case I got them, so that if I did receive them, I shouldn't be receiving them on the level of an animal. Do you understand? So, so then I get out of the mikvah and I see that there's one of the elders of the community. I really didn't know anyone there. I knew like one guy who was, had been my contact. But then there was this other person who I had just a glancing familiarity with. And we need eyes. You know, he's, you, know you can imagine. He's a vision of chassid with a long gray beard and everything like that. And we need eyes. 
And I walk up to him and I introduce myself and he remembered me. I told him, you know, I've gone, every year I've gone and I've, I've gotten matzahs like... And he said, he said, well, he says, there are no matzahs left. He said, but I, I can give you some of my, from my personal things. And I, you know, I told him, I, you know, because he needs his matzahs for, for, for Pesach, you know. So I said, you know, I only want two. I just, I'm only going to take two if that's okay. One because of the yachats, the, the center matzah that you break. And if, I don't know if you had a chance, we, we were learning about the, the greatness of the, the center matzah and how the whole history of, of the world from before creation till Mashiach comes is all enacted over the, 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 the progression of this center matzah. You know, the wholeness before the world was created, the shattering of the vessels when you break it, when you hide it away, it becomes the Komen, which is the third base of Migdash, and your children bring it to you. So you've got the entire history of creation being reenacted over the center matzah. And I asked for two, one for my brother-in-law and one for me, and he took us into his house, and, and uh, you know, we got two of these matzahs. And so, and so it worked out. It worked out. And so, so, so what I want to share with you, just based on this, is, you know, sometimes God just wants to give you something. You know, and, and you can have a thousand reasons why it's not going to work out. And you know what? You might even be right. I'll tell you something very, very deep. But God wants to give it to you anyway. I'll tell you something very deep. One of the most chilling Torahs that I, that I know. I heard this from Reb Shlomo, in the name of the Zohar. And he said the following, that when the Meraglim, the spies, went out to, to report about um, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, they, they, they looked at it, and they made a calculation. We all know that they brought back a, a bad report. And since they were really the tzaddikim, of the Jewish people, the princes of the tribes, they were really the, the greatest among the Jewish people, spiritually speaking. How could it be that they would bring back a bad report about the land of Israel? How could it possibly be? So there are many explanations given, but this is really, this is really very, uh, very intense. So, so I heard from Reb Shlomo Karlovach the following, that what, what they saw was the, the amazing greatness of the, of the land of Israel. Like the phenomenal, 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 awesome greatness of it. But they also saw, and this is the way Rav Shlomo put it, the bank account of the Jewish people. Meaning to say in terms of merits. And they saw that we didn't have the level of merit that was necessary for us to be able to enter into the land. Right? But here's where they went wrong. Here's where they went wrong. They didn't realize that Hashem wanted to give it to us as a gift. You see, sometimes Hashem just wants to give you something as a gift. And logically speaking, you might be right that you don't deserve it and that you don't have the merit for it. You know? Like, you know, have you ever heard the, the expression, sometimes even paranoids are right? Right? Even, you know, even paranoid people actually have enemies. They really do. They might think more people are their enemies that are really their enemies, right? But even paranoid people actually do have enemies. You know, they're not paranoid about those things, right? 
So you might actually be right. You may not have the merit for something. You know, you're not imagining it. You are not deserving of it. You're right about that, 100%. But, 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 Hashem might want to give it to you anyway. He might want to give it to you anyway. That's an awesome thing. That's an awesome thing. Let me, let me just tell you, the, the chilling the Torah, which is a little bit off to the side, but while we're on the subject, just tell you this thing. It also says, this was the Zohar one, that they saw rivers of blood coming out of Israel. Rivers of blood, and they saw all of the tragedies that were going to happen to the Jewish people throughout history. They, have a, they had a prophetic moment. But, you ready for the chilling part? You know what part they didn't see? That all of that was going to be because of them. That's, that's, that's a very strong teaching, you know? So, so anyway, so, so pray. Pray. Pray because God might want to give it to you anyway, and you don't want to receive whatever it is on the level of an animal. If, you don't, if, if it's not in your heart because that, that you think that your prayer is going to be effective, that it's actually going to help you get it, pray anyway because you will want to have prayed if you receive it, so that you shouldn't receive it on the level of an animal. You understand? Okay. What kind of prayer? What kind of prayer? You just, you say, God, you know something? Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, it says in Parshas Vies Hanan, which is, which is, you know, Vies Hanan is, is, is the Parsha where Moshe is making his last prayers to be admitted into the land of Israel. Okay? And uh, the gematria of the word V'yes Hanan is 515. So it says, and it's also the, the, the gematria of the word tefillah, which means prayer. So it's like the essence of prayer. And not only did he pray 515 times to be accepted into the land of Israel, that he should be allowed to go in, but the Vilna Gon says he prayed 515 different prayers. In other words, that's a, that's a very important thing because sometimes all of us have needs and sometimes these are sort of chronic needs, right? Meaning to say that we're praying a long time for these things. So it's, it's very important, the sages teach us, you shouldn't become habituated in a certain prayer because at, at that point, if it becomes rote, it becomes a little bit meaningless to you even as you're praying it. So you have to challenge yourself and you have to come up with different prayers for these things. But one of the secrets that, that, that it says is that Moshe Rabbeinu davens that God just give it to me as a gift. And that great tzaddikim don't leverage their merit. Meaning to say that when they appeal to God, they don't say, God, I've done all of these things. I've done all of this stuff. Give it to me. Look, look, I deserve it. That's not how they approach God. A tzaddik is, a tzaddik on some level has self-esteem because he understands that he's got an ashama, which is an, a, a part of God within him, so how can he not have self-esteem? He's got a part of God in him. All of us have a part of God in us. How can you not have self-esteem? But at the same time understands that I don't deserve anything. Deserve? I don't deserve anything. So, this is, this is actually one of, the, one of the causes of depression 
And one of the traps of the Yetzirah that the negative inclination puts out toward a person is that, is that it, it, it sort of appeals to a person's ego and, and, and tells a person that they deserve such a thing. What do we deserve, honestly? And I'm not saying, you have to understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying we're not good people. And I'm not saying that we aren't worthy of it. We're worthy of every good thing in the world. I mean, we're God's children. We're worthy of every good thing in the world. But deserve? How can I deserve the, the next breath that I take? So... So if a person can, can allow themselves to, to, to get away from that, then they understand that everything they receive is a gift. And then, how can you not rejoice? I'm receiving presents every single moment. Right? So that, this, is, this is very important. And, and it's also tied into humility. And, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu was the most humble person in the entire world. A humble person doesn't think that they deserve anything. You see, but again, I want to reinforce this, 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 um, this parallel. We're worthy of it, but we don't deserve it. Do you understand? Because a person shouldn't feel as though I'm not worthy. Because a person has to understand that they're, they're, they're created being that there's a, that, that each human being is, is glorious is glorious but deserve that's, that's something else so Moshe Rabbeinu who was the most humble person who ever lived understood that every single moment every single aspect of creation was a total gift this is a person who God can give the Torah to so, so this is a big, this is a big secret. It's a big secret in terms of making breakthroughs, in terms of one's connection with God, and and in in terms of also becoming happier. You know, I, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, one of the greatest happiness killers is expectations. How many times have you experienced this in your own life, or I'm sure you know people who experience this? You say, let's say there's a popular movie that's come out, right? And like I say, I think everyone's experiences. And people are raving about this movie. Oh, it's so funny. This is the funniest movie of the year. This is great. And the box office is zooming and people are writing articles about how great this movie is and everything like that. And then you see the movie. And then you go, you know, I was expecting something funnier. <laughs> I thought it would be better. I heard so much. It was so hyped. I, I just thought it was going to be better. I didn't like it so much. Now imagine if you had just seen it, you hadn't heard anything about it, and you just walked in, you just stumbled, the movie that you wanted to see was sold out, Hey, you didn't even want to see this movie, you walked in, oh my goodness, you would have been one of the initial ravers about it, right? Right, the exact same movie, the exact same person, but expectations, expectations, right? So, so if a person can get through these things, it really opens up your heart, it opens up your soul, to be able to receive. You see, because the truth is, is that we're receiving things constantly. But the things that we're receiving as a gift, we think that they're already ours. You know, if, if, if you go, if you go, you finish the meal, right? You go to the coat check, and the person gives you, you, you hand a little chit to the, 
to the, um, to the person behind the counter and they hand you your overcoat. Right? What do you think? You think, okay, I got my coat back. I got my coat back. And that, that's a normal thing to think because it's your coat and you got it back. Right? But that's, we misapply that type of thinking in terms of like, I wake, I, I wake up in the morning. Am I getting a new day as a gift directly from God? No. I'm a young man. I'm not 90. <laughs> I'm not 100. Of course I have a day. This is my day. This is mine. So the things that we, that we are getting as gifts, we're taking them like our ours because we don't, we don't even know that they're gifts. We don't know that they're gifts. We think God is just giving me back something that's already mine. Nothing is ours. Nothing is ours. And then some people might feel threatened by that. You want to take away all these things from me? But it's not yours to begin with. You know, my father was a psychologist. He practiced for 50 years. And, um, you know, every once in a while, he it always stayed with me. He, uh, a, a friend would, would really seriously disappoint him or disappoint someone who he knew or something like that. Do something uh, that was just bad, just a bad thing. And then the person would mourn. How could my friend have done something like this? And my father would say to that person, you can't lose what you never had. Someone who's capable of doing that was never your friend to begin with. So what do you mean, how could you lose a friend? He was never your friend to begin with. You can't lose what you never had. So some people think that if I tell you nothing belongs to you, nothing is yours, you're saying, what are you doing? You're you're taking away everything. You're you're killing me. You're killing me. You're taking away everything that's mine. But no, what I'm telling you is it was never yours to begin with. Now when you have it, you can look at it with fresh eyes and say, look at all these gifts I've been given. Okay, now I want to switch topics and I want to tell you about something. Actually, it's, it's not even switching topics. It's a further explanation, uh, exploration into happiness. Okay? Now, you know, life is strange. Things happen. You never know what's going to happen, right? And uh, Reb Shlomo uh, said one time that God's dreams for us are bigger than, than our own dreams for ourselves. Because... Sometimes things happen and you, you never would have thought to have even have prayed for such a thing or dreamed such a thing. And the context that he said that in was he did a music tour of the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, and he played for steelworkers in Leningrad. And after he played for these steelworkers, they presented him with flowers. And he said, I never in my life could have imagined that I would have played for steelworkers in Leningrad, right? So, so this is not on that level at all, but it's just an, an oddity that happened to me. So actually, I'm still in the process of this. Through a, a contact, I was asked to give a screen, screen uh, writing class over Skype to Sweden. So, so last week, or the week before last, I, I started I'm six hours into a nine-hour um, commitment of teaching screenwriting to a small group of people, like about seven, eight people in, 
not Stockholm, some, I don't even recognize the place. It's like a lot of letters. <laughs> I don't know what this, I can't even, you know, it's like there's some O's in there. And I don't know, I think there's an F and an L, but anyway, I don't even know, I've never seen this place before. But I'm, so I'm teaching these guys in, in this place. And there's, there's one guy who comes a little bit late, maybe five minutes into the talk. And even over Skype to Sweden, I get like a negative feeling when this person walks in the room. You know, I just, there wasn't anything particularly off about his face or his, his dress. Um, he wasn't wearing a dress. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It was the dress that threw me. <laughs> um, no, it, there was a, nothing about what he was wearing. I just kind of got this dark feeling when he walked in the room. So anyway, so he, he, he sits down and we're a couple of hours into the talk. And the students are asking me some questions. And, and uh, you know, we're just kind of talking about what it means to be a creative person and this, that, and the other thing and the industry and, you know, bless you. And, uh, and, and I hit on this question and I'll ask you guys to think about it on your own. And here's the question. You ready? Which is, would you trade having authored a world-class masterpiece all right, so I'll give you some examples so you know what I'm talking about. You know, that you would have written, say, Beethoven's Fifth, or you would have written Hamlet, or you would have painted, you know, the Mona Lisa, right? Some, whatever is your particular taste in, in, in art, right? That you could have been... The, the author, or whatever it is, or you directed this movie, right, Star Wars, whatever it is, that you, you could have done that, but in exchange for having done that, right, you'll be miserable your entire life. So, so that's, that's what, so I, thought, so I said to them, I would not make that trade. I would not make that trade that I'll have been the author of Hamlet, say, um, right? And but I'm going to be miserable my entire life. And I said, does does? And I thought to myself, that just makes sense. So I said, does everyone agree? And everyone raises their hand that they that they agree. And I said, okay, everyone agrees. And then I hear a voice from the back. I didn't raise my hand. Right? So it was that guy. And I said, so you would, you would trade having authored a world-class masterpiece, right, for being miserable your entire life? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he said, because I am miserable. And I was like, Good answer, you know. So, so that was that was interesting. That was an interesting moment. That was a very very interesting moment. And you see, I just want to kind of build on that a little bit. So I was thinking about it, and you see, 
Many of us think, I think that there probably are exceptions, there are people who would make that trade. My suspicion is that those people are in the minority. And, uh, and like I said, I would encourage you to ask yourself that question, and I'd be curious later on what, what, what your answer is. Um, so, so many people think that, let's say I want to accomplish X, and, and, and X, whatever that is, whatever that goal in life is, that X, if I get X, then I'll become happy. But what if happiness is a completely, in a completely different direction? There's X, that thing that you want to accomplish, but happiness is already, there's a separate road to happiness. Would you just take that separate road to happiness if you could do that? In other words, a lot of people think that, that the entree point to happiness is, is at the same place as X, or it's right behind X, and I don't get to happiness until I get to X. But what if X on the map is in a totally different place? And you don't need to get to X in order to get to happiness. What if that's the case? And I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying don't strive for greatness. And I'm not saying don't make big goals for yourself and try to change the world and accomplish great things. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, is X necessarily a precondition to achieving happiness? I, I don't know that it is. And I would venture further to say that it isn't. And, you know, I, there, there's an, another example of this I'd like to share, which is, let's say, what's your wildest success fantasy? Right? So let's say, just to give an example, I have a fantasy that, um, that I've directed the greatest grossing box office hit in the history of cinema. Right? I've done it. I did it. I beat Steven Spielberg and James Cameron, and it's me. I now hold the all-time greatest grossing box office movie ever. I did it. Right? So now, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm going to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I'm going to have a drink by the pool. Right? So you know what? I can go to the Beverly Hills Hotel <laughs> right now and have a drink by the pool right now. So you say to me, well, it's not the same thing, because I don't deserve it. Well, who, who sets the terms of whether you deserve something or not? You do. You do. You do. So, so why be held hostage? In other words, we have to set goals for ourselves. But who says that we have to have those goals take our happiness hostage? Who says that? That's just the Yetzirah. That's just the, the negative inclination. That's all that is. All right. Now, now I want to I want to talk about a. Uh, Another idea here, which is this, this past Shabbos, and if you didn't get a chance to do it uh, this week, then, then um, maybe you can do it next year if you'd like. We made um, something called Schlisselchala. So, so Schlisselchala 
is a special once a year thing where you make a, a challah um, for Shabbos in either in the shape of the key or you put your house key in it. And it's a blessing for uh, wealth. Okay? And it's always the first Shabbos. It's just one Shabbos in the year. It's the Shabbos after Pesach. <coughs> Alright? And my understanding of what the idea is, is it says in the beginning of Gomorrah Tainus that, um, that Hashem holds three keys. One is the key to uh, rain, which in, in Torah thought means money, because rain makes the crops grow, and when you have crops, you get cash, food, right? So one is rain, one is resurrection of the dead, and one is children. So these are things that really basically only God can, can, can do uh, for us. So the idea is, is that you're making this challah in the shape of a key. You know, challah is bread. Bread is sustenance. You're making it in the shape of a key. And it's a, it's a prayer to God. You're praying to God, please God, you hold the keys. Please God, open up the gates of livelihood for us. That, that, that would be the idea. So you're, 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 you're presenting it as a prayer to God. Okay. And you don't think, God forbid, that... And this comes with... Um, all sagulas, all of these type of mystical enactments, you don't think that this chala is going to create livelihood for me. In other words, it will sound obvious when I put it like that, but it's, it's very important that a person understands, because otherwise then it gets into, that, that becomes a, a, a taste of idol worship already. If you think that, and again, this, no one's doing this on purpose, but you have to be very clear about what your intentions are. You don't think that somehow the blessing for wealth is coming from the bread, right? No one, no one thinks that, right? But you just have to be very clear on that, okay? Just like when you go to the grave of a tzaddik, you don't pray to the tzaddik, right? You, you pray to God in the merit of the tzaddik. And in the merit of this great tzaddik, may, may blessings come down. That's, that's again, just uh, a similar type of idea. So, so, let me just share with you something special. So, I started looking into this idea of challah and human beings and everything like this, and I saw some special stuff, so let me just share it with you, which is that, which is that there's a reference to Adam Harishon, the first person being challah. Okay, because it says that God took the dust from the earth, and he formed man, and then he breathed the breath of life into man. Okay? So at first we were like a golem, right? You know, like in the classic sense of a golem, we were like this, this uh, clay or earthen figure of a person, and then God breathed life into us, and then we stood up, and, and, and that was the first human being. Okay? But the first part of it was taking the earth and forming us from the earth, okay? And that's compared to kneading dough and making bread, okay? So in the Pasuk, in the verse from the Torah that talks about this formation of the initial form of, of the first person, it says, Ha'adam l'nefesh chaya. This is in chapter 2, verse 7. Ha'adam l'nefesh chaya. Right? Now, this is talking about God creating a living being. 
Now, if the Balaturim brings that if you take the first letter of these three words and you go backwards, okay? Ha'adam, that's He, Lenefesh, that's Lamed, Chaya, that's Ches. So if you go backwards, Ches, Lamed, He spells Chala. Right? So the first human being was like bread. He was like Chala. Okay, now listen to this. That's just the beginning. So, so the first person was like bread. That's Adam. Now, now we have a halacha. If a person wants to make challah, which is a, a, a great blessing, and it's a blessing for livelihood all year long, you should know, uh, to make bread for Shabbos. It's a, it's a very beautiful mitzvah. Now, there's a very uh, special part of the bread-making process that you have to know, and there's a blessing that you can say if you have enough dough on the table when you're making it. Before you actually form it into loaves, you have to take, and now I'm going to use the halachic definition of challah, you have to take a, 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 a part of the dough out. And that's a gift for the kohen. Okay? So, and that's called challah. That, that part that you take out is called challah. That's the actual halachic definition the calling the actual initial loaf of bread challah, that's just kind of vernacular. That's just bread. That's just lechem, really. The real challah is that which is taken out from it. Now, since we don't have a, a kohen today, like we don't have a beis hamigdash today, we don't give gifts to the kahanim. So, we take, that, we take out that bread, we take out that challah, and what do we do today? We burn it. Meaning to say that this challah that we've taken has this increased level of sanctity, but we don't have the infrastructure in Jewish society yet, because we don't have a holy temple, we don't have a base of Mikdash, so we don't have anything to do with it. We can take the challah, but we don't have anything to do with the challah. So now what do you do with it? You can't use it for normal purposes, you can't use it for yourself, so what do we do with it? We burn it. Okay, do you understand? Okay. Now, now listen to this. How was Chava, how was the first woman formed? So remember, Adam is laying there, he's the bread, and Hashem takes the side of Adam, the rib of Adam, and he takes it out of Adam and he forms woman. So woman is Chava. Woman is Chava. And just like Chava has increased sanctity, so women, spiritually speaking, have increased sanctity over men. Right? Because in the order of creation, first God creates the animals, and then more complex life forms. Then it's, it's just going up in holiness. Then he creates the first man. And then what does he do? He creates a woman. So it's all going up in Kedusha. So again, the idea that Hashem takes from the bread, and, and that's the Chala, that's that's Chava. Now, now listen to this. There's certain letters of exchange in Hebrew that's based on where in the mouth you pronounce the letters. Like, like, um, like for instance, if you pronounce the letter uh, Bez, like B in English, you go B. If you go B, you can feel it on your lips. B, right? Now, if, I, if you pronounce the letter uh, Pei, like pizza, right? P, 
P. Do you see how B and P are both coming off of your lips? So there are certain letters that, that if they come from the same place as your mouth, from your mouth, you can exchange them in terms of understanding the Torah. And you can do letters of exchange. Now, there are certain words, letters that come from the back of the throat. Cha and ka both come from the back of the throat. Okay? So, if you exchange the ches of chala for a kuf, what do you get? Chala, which means bride. So, 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 so the idea that, that every bride is like the chala, like the chala, right, taken from Adam, this shows you how every bride is like Chava back to the Garden of Eden. You see? So there's all sorts of uh, amazing things from this. Now, I want to share with you something from, from Rabbeinu Bechaya. And I recommend, if um, he was a Rishon, late 1200s, early 1300s, there's about an eight-volume set um, that you can buy an English translation of Rabbeinu Bechaya's work. And it was edited by um, Rabbi Eliyahu Monk. And it's a wonderful treasure chest of amazing insights. Now listen to this. Rabbeinu Bachaya says the following. That the letter Shin is on all of our bodies. Men and women alike. The letter Shin is on our bodies. So I, if we had more time, I would ask you if you could guess where it is. So, you know, it's not on your fingers. It's not on your toes. It's just an outright shin on your body. And the answer is, it's right here on your nose. <laughs> right? And now listen to this amazing thought. God blew the breath of life into us through our nose. Bless you. <laughs> It's like the thunderclap. And, <laughs> and, and, and that Shin is the first letter of the name Shakai, right? That's a, or Shaddai, Shin Dalid Yud. And that's the seal of Hashem, that's the covenant of Hashem on our bodies, where He blew the breath of life into us. And every person has the letter Shin on their body. Amazing, amazing thing. Now, I don't know that Rabbeinu Bechaya, I want to expand on that. I don't know if he says this, but I'd like to just add the following, which is, you know, by the way, in this week's Parsha, when Nadav and Avihu, their souls are taken from them, what, what, it, what it says, it's a, it's a Rashi in Gomorrah Sanhedrin, that fire came down from heaven and went through their noses and then took out their soul. And of course, if you don't know it, the reason why we have the custom of saying, bless you, when a person, or God bless you, or Gesundheit, or they're, they're all versions of the same thing, is because of the belief that, that when you sneeze, that your soul shouldn't leave through your nose. That's why people say, God bless you, meaning this is a gift of life, a blessing for life, so that you should be protected. So that's, that's all this idea of the nose being this entryway of the, of the life form and why the letter Shin is there. So it's right at the, if you will, doorpost of your body. Now why am I saying that? Because where do we put a mezuzah? At the entrance and exit way of a room. 
And what is this name Shakai all about anyway? It means enough, because this was the name that God uttered when the universe was created. Initially, like, remember, from the Kabbalistic perspective, we've had the Big Bang Theory down for thousands of years, that God took an initial point of matter, which was the foundation stone of the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple, and he expanded it and expanded it and expanded it. That's his, this is the Big Bang Theory. You know, this is why science is still catching up with Torah. Until God said, Shaddai, enough. And that, and that put parameters on the physical universe. Well, where does your mezuzah go? At the parameter of your room. Where is this letter Shin, which is the same name, Right? It just, it, it puts the breath of life into you, and then it sort of seals it off at the gateway. Right? So, so, so that's a far out thing, you know? And I'll tell you something else. Rabbeinu Bechaya says this, and I just, I love the simplicity and the directness of this, of this mushal, of this parable. Remember, a person's when, when, after 120, the soul does leave the body, the soul lives on. We are immortal. This is not a, some sci-fi fantasy. We are immortal. The soul lives on as the soul with an identity of the personality of the person. In other words, we, we continue as us after we leave the body. Now listen to this beautiful, simple parable which expresses this so beautifully from Rabbeinu Bukhaya. He says, when, when someone is the captain of a ship, and you should just know, uh, just a, a little bit of background, that the body by, by the sages is compared to a ship, right? Because it's traveling from one place to another. It's traveling from, from the world of souls, from where we come down from, and then we take this ship ride to the next dimension, Basically, okay? So the body is compared to a ship by the sages. Okay. So just like there's a captain of the ship. Now listen to this. When the captain leaves the ship, he's still the captain of the ship. Isn't that awesome? When the soul leaves the body, it's still the soul. Doesn't stop being the soul. Doesn't stop being this leadership presence. Right? With integrity in and of itself. When the captain leaves the ship, it's still the captain. So, so just, uh, just utterly simple, but so trenchant, you know, just so beautiful. Um, okay, well, um, I think maybe we'll wrap it up. <laughs> There's more I actually want to share with you about um, just this whole sphere period that we're in. You know, in terms of understanding this journey from Pesach to, to Shavuos, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to save it for a, another time. So, um, anyway. Hi. <laughs> Thank you.